Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, August 15th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We are just three months away from our annual glorious event, the annual Commentary Roast. And this year's roastie, as I told you on Friday, is Barry Weiss, the uh, non-pareil, uh, anti-woke, voice of the younger set and the host of the honestly podcast the proprietor of common sense at substack the fighter against anti-semitism the warrior against political correctness in media the person who told the new york times where it could stick its job when it was giving her grief about having commissioned an op-ed not from a leading figure uh, in the in a totalitarian government, but from an elected senator from Arkansas. Uh, Barry's an amazing person. She also could use being taken down a couple of pegs, and that's what we do at the roast. Go to commentary.org slash roast to buy your ticket or tickets or tables. Um, this is our annual fundraiser. It is vitally important to us to have a successful event so that we can continue to bring you this podcast and the magazine and all sorts of other goodies. November 13th here in New York City, one of the great events of the year, according to almost everyone who's this will be our 12th roast and uh, promises to be one of the best commentary.org slash roast Barry Weiss, November 13th, be there or be square. We are square, but we will be there. And the squares who will be there are executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. I think it's fair to say that uh, the claim being made by critics of the FBI's warrant, warranted search of Mar-a-Lago Trump's Florida residence on Monday, that the claim that what we have here is a fishing expedition has been more than justified by what the warrant, as it was released, says, which is you can take any document produced by the White House from January 20th, 2017 to January 20th, 2021 classified or unclassified we're looking for violations of the espionage act we're looking for violations of the presidential records act we're looking for obstruction we have a camera we have that so that what we have here is a very broad writ involving material that uh trump or his people brought to mar-a-lago and so i think calling it a fishing expedition is a perfectly fair way to characterize it based on the material that we have seen that said go on a fishing expedition you can catch a very big marlin fishing expeditions are not in and of themselves as a metaphor uh are not illegitimate i mean yeah maybe what you're doing is hunting for a crime so that you can charge somebody with a crime on the other hand if something falls within the uh, remit of those three conditions that the warrant laid out 
and it is sort of beyond question that something was done knowingly wrongly, um, then you have a real problem on your hands. So this is a parallel or an analog to Eli Lake's point in commentary last year that Trump is guilty and framed. Like Trump was actually guilty of harming national security and playing footsie with the Russians, but framed on the question of whether or not he was an agent. What we could have here is a fishing expedition in which the Justice Department is basically looking for any and every reason to indict Trump, but he could be guilty. Does does the fact that he could be guilty legitimate the approach that seems to have been taken? That's where you start getting into interesting territory here, because basically it seems to be the general line of people who have taught us for the last half century that procedure matters, that it matters when cops and authorities uh, over overextend uh, their mandate or what the law says they should do out of overzealousness and therefore threatens everybody by legitimizing behavior that uh, violates the principle that you are innocent until proven guilty. These are people who have instructed us in this pretty much since the 1960s in the Warren court. And now suddenly it's all fine because Trump is such a unique danger to democracy that it's fine for the FBI to go just looking for a crime in his, you know, by raiding his private home. Uh, and on the other hand, people who are tend to be supporters of the notion that, you know, criminals do criminal things. And if they're caught doing criminal things, they do criminal things. And, citing procedure is just a way of siding with the bad guys or, you know, not looking at the victims. And suddenly now everybody on the right is a big fan of, you know, of, of these kinds of civil liberties in relation to the cops. And then the third point I'm going to make is we're getting lectures about how terrible it is that people on the right are making threats and 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 acting like it would be proper for there to be a violent response to what happened at Mar-a-Lago on Monday. And I agree that that is disgusting. It's disgusting that anybody is doing this, and it's horrible. But a lot of the same people, as I recall, seem to be mute to um, implicitly supportive of actual violence, riots, burnings down of cities in the wake of George Floyd as a result of what they deemed to be police. What we did not yet know, because it hadn't been proven in court, was an act of actual police misconduct and a police killing. Uh, because uh, they were, you know, Der- Derek Chauvin were found, was found guilty of doing so. A- and, and they were mostly mute. I mean, some of the same people um, in regard to threats of violence after against the Supreme Court after the Dobbs decision came, came down. Right. So uh, everybody is behaving badly except us. So uh, good luck. Good to us. Cause we're on, we're not on anybody's side here. Everybody's wrong and everybody's in the right and everybody's wrong. Can so I, now we can, yes, please. Abe. I'll just dive into your first point about the, the fishing expedition. I think whether or not w- what is caught validates the, the fishing expedition is, is one thing. And I'll just set that aside for a second, but I think what the, the fact of the fishing expedition does um, since we since we started out there now, it means that the raging fight over this will survive in perpetuity. Um, we are now stuck with this is illegitimate. This is uh, third world garbage. 
um, versus this president mishandled top secret material and the law is the law and so on. And, and, and we are now locked in to this sort of vicious cultural battle because it began as a fishing expedition. Well, the, the always excellent Jack Goldsmith has written a really good piece in Lawfare uh, looking at that, looking at both the political and the legal issues, because they, we have to separate the two in some sense, right? There are these, it's very, very likely that if you go if, on a fishing expedition, as John said, you're going to find something and you might even find something that's worthy of indictment. We know, you know, from Trump's past and Trump's history that that, that is not a, would not be a shocking scenario to imagine. But there's also these political questions and there's, and this is where the, the institutional integrity questions come into play, because if Merrick Garland, who claims he's not a political actor, has now he's now at the center of what you describe. Abe. He's in the center of a political firestorm, whether he chose to be there or not. And there's a real tension between this. Oh, look, an independent justice system that, that works independently without any acknowledgement of what has come before. And I know I keep harping on this, but if he's found if Trump is found to have violated statutes that, that we know Hillary Clinton violated, people are going to be a upset if he faces different consequences than she did. Now, if they find something worse, if they find, you know, national security level intelligence that he shouldn't have had or that might have been at risk of, of falling into the wrong hands, people might change their minds. But I, I'm with Abe. And, and one of the things that Jack warns about in his excellent piece is, you know, Garland now is now in the middle of this and has to continue telling a story about why this was justified, given what unfurls. So if they find something related to January 6th, that has to be uh the American people have to understand why the fishing expedition was worth the political cost that it's already exacted. And I'm not sure that this Justice Department is capable of, of telling that story. Well, part of the problem, and actually Kevin Williamson made this point <clears throat> in a podcast with uh, Jonah Goldberg, is part of the problem here is that quite a lot, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, um, the mishandling of government documents is the sort of thing that you would catch a charge for if nobody knew your name. Uh, we do actually charge and prosecute on a fairly regular basis for that sort of situation. Now, part of the problem is, is that Donald Trump was president. And now we're dealing with this unitary executive theory that, according to Kash Patel, it's a guy around Donald Trump's orbit, the president can simply, through force of will, deem something unclassified, not tell anybody about it, and it exists as unclassified just by virtue of his own sentiments. Um, that test, that theory has never been tested, certainly hasn't been tested in court, in part because nobody has ever had to test that theory. We keep talking about all the violations of the norms, all the norms. Justice Department's violating all the norms. Donald Trump is doing a lot of unprecedented stuff, too. That has made everybody do a lot of unprecedented stuff in response. I'm uncomfortable with the fishing expedition, but at the same time, we're talking about a lot of government documents that should not be in his possession. I don't think anybody disputes that. Uh, it's whether or not they are of relevance to national security because they are classified and their classification status is what's at issue. Look, Barack Obama asked about Hillary Clinton's conduct relating to classified information said the president of the United States at the time said, look, there's classified and then there's classified. Like, let, let's be honest, like uh, there's a lot of word, the word classified appears on the top of a lot of documents. And there are documents that are really, really dangerous that, uh, you know, really should only be held. In. And then there's a lot of stuff in the front. You don't want it to be floating around, just handed around from person to person. 
but let, let, let's be honest. So we have a president, sitting president of the United States, uh, Mr. You know, Mr. Clean Jeans, according to everybody who ever worked with him, who said you can't like Hillary Clinton should not be presumed to be guilty of mishandling classified information until we know what that classified information was. And in fact, if I'm remembering correctly, James Comey identified something like eight documents in her possession that were really untoward or like that she really shouldn't have had according to what you know according on in that january july 5th 2016 press conference but said that the utter preponderance of evidence suggested that you know what she did was negligent but not grossly negligent so since she didn't hit the gross negligence standard which he invented pretty much for that press conference there was no reason to charge her for mishandling classified information okay so if that's the standard, we need to know what kind of classified information Trump mishandled because we do have a precedent. Now, granted, Hillary wasn't the president and he was the president, but we have a precedent. We have the former Secretary of State in the last in the administration before Trump's mishandling 30, you know, mishandling all this classified information. But in the in the eyes of the Justice Department, it did not rise to the level of indictment. So if you use that as a precursor standard, we have a precursor standard. Let's say that's not the precursor standard. And let's go back to the Democratic Party in 2015 or 2014 and the basically clearing of the decks so that Hillary Clinton should run for president. Uh, when it became clear in March of 2015 that she had mishandled classified information and her response to it was arrogant cavalier and self-destructive in the extreme both at that famous press conference at the UN and then in saying did you wipe your server clean and she said what with a cloth and all of that so uh, there was a reason why you don't clear the field for somebody like Hillary Clinton no matter what her approval rating was at the time that the field was cleared for her, which is elections and primaries are about making sure that someone can run the gauntlet to get to the presidency. It's not just to run the gauntlet to get the support of your own party. It's also how are they going to react to extreme political pressure and all that? Yes, it was her second race. Yes, she'd run in 2007, 2008 and couldn't beat Obama. But okay, this was her turn, and she's a woman, and you got blah, blah, blah. And in fact, had there been a serious race in 2015, had Biden run in 2015, for example, and not just Bernie Sanders, or had a couple of people run in 2015, the it, oh, Bernie Sanders said, I'm sick and tired of hearing about your emails in what, what was maybe the biggest single mistake of his, of his primary run. But if it had not been him, somebody else would have done it would have said, yes, I know it's Republicans and Republicans are terrible making this big deal out of this. But look, she mishandled classified information that goes to her judgment and all that. It could have been adjudicated and maybe she wouldn't have been the nominee. Her presence, her presence in the race as the putative nominee from 2015 onward and her mishandling of the information and her high-handed way of doing it and the fact that she was married to the person you know, who was the most, you know, who and had been involved in corruption beforehand. What do you think cleared the way for Trump entering the race in June of 2015? 
what cleared the way? There was a crook running. There was a person under, under you know, who who had like basically been playing fast and loose with real estate law in in uh, you know Arkansas in the eighties and nineties. Who did untoward things with the travel office in the White House in the nineteen nineties and was behaving very badly right then. And so it's like, I'm the set a thief to catch a thief. She's a crook. I'm a crook, but I can get her. Like everybody else is talking, artsy, fartsy, the future, this and that. Lock her up, says Trump. Right? This all emanates. We're here because Barack Obama, the Democratic Party, did not do its due diligence in saying I'm sorry, a person who mishandles classified information should not be the nominee of a major American political party. So then you get the next person comes on. He is the nominee and the president of the new political party. And is he now, we're now supposed to go back to the Caesar's wife standard that Barack Obama himself said, well, there's classified and then there's classified. And, you know, my Justice Department isn't going to after Bill Clinton has a meeting on a tarmac with the Attorney General of the United States, Loretta Lynch, is not going to prosecute Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's where it's like where the right, disgusting though the violence stuff is, and it really is disgusting and frightening and like a sign of things breaking down in a way that it just can't be ignored. They're on to something. Suddenly, people who are willing to make all kinds of excuses when it's their people are like, you know, uh, Savarinola when it comes to the, our people. Well, no, you don't get to, you don't get to play it that way. You know, it's like people talk about the court of public opinion. The problem in the United States is there are two courts of public opinion. Merrick Garland, I think it's possible, played to one. That is the liberal court of public opinion that says Donald Trump is a unique threat. He keeps getting away with everything. Here's the latest. No more. Send him in. Find out what's in there and throw the book at him if you can. And that is one court of public opinion. And it makes up roughly half of the politically minded people of the United States. And then there is another court of public opinion, and it's an entirely different court of public opinion that says, you people treat Republicans unfairly, you have a double standard, you hate us, you think everybody's a monster, and you hate Trump. Well, you go at Trump, you already did it, you did it in Russiagate, you did it here, you did it there. No, we don't hear a word you're saying, we don't believe a word that you're doing, everything, you're a bunch of hypocrites, and you want to criminalize everybody else, well, the hell with you. And Garland did not heed, this is Jack Goldsmith says this implicitly, did not heed the fact that there was a second court of public opinion that he should have been listening to. Abe, sorry. It's the death of the official story. Uh, the first court of public opinion that you refer to, they adjudicate and then sort of present the official story. Um, this applies not just to Trump, uh, if, if you go to COVID and all sorts of policy issues and er there's this official story. And then the problem is when you have uh, a political culture or a society generally resting on the broad acceptance of these official stories, um, 
what happens when they break down, when they're disproven? Um, and we've seen that and and it, it will continue to apply to all sorts of phenomena. You know, when anything happens now, there's this whole population that rises up and say, says, no, I don't buy it. Uh, fool me once, fool me twice. We've seen the official story fall apart, fall apart. Who are you to tell me it, it's it's the, the official story? And that's where, as John says, they're on to something. Um, these these have been breaking down. There's also the the contempt that's been expressed by the people who used to craft the official story and expect everyone to swallow it. And I'm thinking here of, you know, Hillary tweeting out pictures of, you know, she's selling hats that say butter emails. So it's not enough that she actually did something questionable and, and you know, possibly criminal and got away with it. It's that she's rubbing it in everyone's face. Like, look, aha, see, you, you could have had me and said you chose this other guy and what a disaster he is. But there's a contempt uh, at the base layer of that sort of uh, promoting herself. And I think, and it's not just Hillary that that does that there. And it speaks to a point we talked about a little bit on the podcast last week. It's a two culture point too. It's not just there's uh, no, no longer an acceptable official story. It's that there's an entire alternative cultural universe in which people who don't want to listen to, you know, to, or be force fed the official story anymore can craft their own narratives. Now, some of them are crazy. Some of them are completely QAnonish nut stuff, but they can actually avoid having to be scolded and lectured by the people crafting the official narrative. And that that that's a point of tension that that speaks to a weakness of the mainstream technocratic elite long term, I think, because they have to compete. And right now they're not competing. They're just saying, well, that's disinformation. That's crazy. That's just, you know, we don't have to pay attention to that. Well, they will be forced to pay attention to it. And particularly right now, the only aspect they're paying attention to, which, and I agree with John on this, is the violent rhetoric, which is terrible. Um, they have that on their own side as well. They ignore it on their own side. And now they're going after, you know, that the, there's a lot of discussion of the violent rhetoric now in the mainstream media. I agree that it should be condemned by everyone on all sides anytime it happens. But that's not been the story of, of how it's been dealt with in the past. Well, that's a huge, you know, a huge part of the danger here in, in the, this collapse of official story or official stories is that it's like, you know, when they say when people cease to believe in God, they'll believe in anything. Uh, when you no longer buy into the official story, you'll you'll go with any story. You'll believe anything, um, because what 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 basis is there to assess uh, one as being any more valid than the other? Look, I mean, there's an interesting conversation going on about classification and the president's rights of classification, and the line is, and again, I'm, I'm I find it you know tempting as a commonsensical it's like he can't just say that stuff was declassified i'm sorry no it that's would be better right. if he actually said it he can't just think that something's declassified that's what's at issue now however that's what you're saying and jack goldsmith that and Kash is, Patel. yes that is adjudicatable this is the problem the problem is that since there is no case law and there is no history Okay, I said this last week on Tuesday. How do we know that Trump didn't pass his hand over a briefcase and say everything within the contents of this briefcase is declassified? Okay, we don't. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you. We don't. Yeah, we no, can't. The part of the problem here is that Donald Trump is testing these norms. 
it's not the Justice Department that came out of nowhere and said the mishandling of classified material violates statute, both federal statute now, because Donald Trump signed a law in 2018, making it a federal crime, but just longstanding practice. And people are prosecuted for this sort of thing. And Hillary Clinton's career was destroyed over it. And so we have some evidence to suggest that this is a violation of the legal president. practice and norms. However, your point, yes. it, because this is unitary executive theory, basically, that the president is just a, he is the embodiment of the executive branch. He can do whatever he wants. And he, but now we have to adjudicate whether it's appropriate to read the president's mind. How on right. earth are we ever going to establish that in a court? It is not unitary executive theory that the power of classification of documents emanates from the president himself. Okay, these are Article Two powers of the executive. Okay, it's the authority vested in the president of the United States, not in the executive branch of the United States, not in the structure of the government. It is authority vested in the person of the president, and how that authority is expressed. There are centuries of common law that say, well, you need proof, right? You need proof. If he's going to declassify, he should sign a piece of paper that says this is declassified. But the Constitution does not say there needs to be a piece of paper. And therefore, the argument that Trump had this almost unlimited power to declassify, which, by the way, is understood to be the case at any given moment that he is sitting in the Oval Office. He brings somebody in and says to them, you know, we found life on Pluto. He's allowed to say that. He can tell anybody anything. That's, these are his secrets. There, the government has no implicit secrets. It has explicit secrets that it declares are secrets because of him, not because of the legislature, not because of the judiciary, but because of him and the authority vested in the president of the United States. Therefore, what I'm saying is it's a two-year court case when he says, I call, I said all these things were declassified. Because if you take it that someone is innocent until proven guilty, if the Constitution enumerates a power that he has, proving that he did not exercise that power requires a very serious legal proceeding that is goes to the heart and root of our constitutional system. I just don't know That's how you what, ever... Now, let me just finish my point. Let me just... I'm going to say 30 seconds, and then you... Which is... That's one of the reasons why there is discretion in the hands of Merrick Garland, the attorney general, about whether to execute this warrant, because it is opening a Pandora's box of constitutional law. And he should know. I knew that. I'm not part of the Office of Legal Counsel. You know, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I knew it and he should have known it. And so should his OLC. And what we don't know is. Did they say, ooh, you're taking your, taking your life in your hands here because it's pretty explicit that the power to declassify in a pres sitting president's hands is pretty absolute. So just so you know, you know, hmm, and then he went ahead anyway. 
we are heading, this is part of what Abe, so it's not just populist stuff. We're heading into years of litigation. None of this is going to be resolved before the election of 2024. There's not going to be some quick resolution. I mean, you know, no, I'm apparently sure we have to adjudicate a- this. You just established the conditions at which point we could have a paper trail that would suggest one way or the other whether the president actively declassified this information. If he just took these boxes and didn't keep them in a secure compartmentalized information facility, yeah. And that's not declassified. That's not that's not the proper handling of these documents. He can keep them in his underwear. If the OLC has, if there's no, if there's, you just said if there's underwear. a paper trail at the OLC, that's a way to establish what his thinking was at the time. That and if, if the way... paper trail does not exist, then yes. there is no way to establish his thinking. That's correct. And it, You're which, right. But, but you can infer doesn't both. doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But you can infer. Const- okay. You can, Constitution you, does not require a paper trail. No. Noah, I'm there not is statute arguing... about nuclear documents that does suggest that the president doesn't simply have the authority to, to declassify on a whim how a we statute, make a fissionable device. A statute of law does not over does not override the Constitution of the United States. A statute cannot override the powers granted to the president in the Constitution of the United States. Well, so the legal but the so the legal issue, and I think Jack actually spells this out really well in his piece, is if if whatever if, if Trump declassified, took the stuff back, and then the current president says actually that's all classified material and it has to come back because it's a date you you then the battle is between the former president and the current president. That is a constitu- constitutional question as to who has the right. To, can you reclassify documents that the previous president declared and unclassified? I find it absolutely bizarre to even su- suggest that the Madisonian scheme, as envisioned by the founders, would vest this absolute authority in a potentially abusive executive. What are you talking about? I mean, we're talking about secret documents of the presidency the madisonian the federalists did not anticipate a moment at which the president there were going to be 200 billion pages of classified documents produced by necessarily true the founders envisioned legislative gridlock i i I don't necessarily but they didn't envision this 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 thing that we're talking about here is only 70 some odd years old yeah, but I mean, there's reason to believe there was that. no national. Why would the founders state? not understand that maybe a secret deal with the Barbary pirates was the sort of thing that you wouldn't want the public to know? Of course, they understood that's state treason. secrets. That, what do you, I, because it's not in the Constitution, and it's not in the Federalist Papers. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I, I granted I don't have a photographic memory for the Federalist Papers, but I don't think there's anything in the legislative history of the United States to to suspect that the founders had a view of this matter we had an adjudication of this in 2017 about what happened when trump closed the um you know the first week when he was president he did that emergency act about uh letting people in until we find out what the hell is going on from the seven islam you know muslim countries you remember that the fights at the airport and everything like that so it turned out there's an act, 1952, the National Security Act of 1952, gives the president almost unlimited authority to do what he did at the airports. You remember that? But it was a badly drafted statement. But basically, the Supreme Court said badly drafted or not, here's what the law the law says. He can do pretty much well, whatever no, no, he no, wants. Well, no, 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 no. That did not survive until the third iteration, at which point they had to introduce North Korea to make sure that it wasn't discriminatory. Right. Okay. But 
the 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 law the law said the president has enormous latitude on questions of national security and the con- and there is no history of questioning whether or not the president can or cannot classify or reclassify what there is by the way and there this is in the constitution is you can't then have biden reclassify the documents and then arrest trump for mishandling classified documents that would be ex post facto prosecution you can't you can't say oh he said they were declassified i'm now saying they're classified and now he's going to be arrested for mishandling classified documents that i've now said 18 months later were classified that he said were unclassified I mean, the, the, tr- the truth is that if there's a silver lining to all of this Mar-a-Lago raid stuff, it's that if it if it could actually reignite a debate about the imperial presidency, remember Schlesinger wrote that book back in what, the 70s, and there's been ongoing concern about the expansion of, of uh, presidential power in the form of executive orders, for example. That's not a debate the Biden administration is going to want to have, given how often they in- invoke that power and use it to avoid having to try to legislate or having Congress legislate. But that actually, that debate, I mean, I think that's where the issue of what precedent this will set is still so very much up in the air. If Garland brings an indictment against Trump for anything in the next few weeks and there's a prosecution, much of this discussion is then rendered moot until we find out whether he's actually got a strong case and he can pursue it. So, But that's where I, I, I'm curious because I actually don't know the answer. How? What's the time delay that we foresee uh, between now and a possible uh, indictment or not? They are talking about months and months and months, right? Now, Trump has introduced this new this new thing, which is that they've seized documents that are mm, protected as a matter of attorney-client privilege, right? Yeah. And yeah. so they've now said, well, we brought in a new team. We have another team to go through every document to make sure that it's not privileged. So that slows that down. This slows the other thing down. That slows something else down. But I am telling you right now, if they indict on the grounds that Trump mishandled classified information, I mean, I don't even know what I'm telling you right now, but I'm just going to say, really, if they get him on fraud, if they get him on actual crimes that people understand, okay, that he took some stuff out of the White House and brought it to Mar-a-Lago, and that's going to be a felony prosecution, Good luck to the future of this country. I'm sorry. I don't believe that we're in a civil war. You got to get him if you're going to get him on a crime that people understand as a crime. He stole money. He, you know, he, you know, it's not, he violated a law I that doesn't even, that he violated some law that has never been, no one's ever been prosecuted for. Which is Again, the president? We've never had a president who tested this theory out. Yeah, I understand, and that's maybe a, a profound weakness of the system, or, or of strength. our drafting. What? <laughs> or a strength? We've never had somebody this eager to test the parameters of propriety in government uh, as the executive, uh, the head of the executive branch. Okay, so he says they came to us and they said give us back all this information. And we were civil and polite. We had a polite exchange and we gave them all these boxes and they said, put a lock on the door. And we put a lock on the door and they said, put a camera near the lock so we can watch the lock. And we put a camera near the lock. Right. And then they came back and they found some more boxes and they took the boxes. We don't know what's in the boxes. Okay. We don't know that anything that was taken in those boxes is bad. 
just to make sure people understand this, because there's been a lot of elision about what, what was in the previous boxes and what are in these boxes, what's in the inventory in these boxes, because there's a lot of talk about how there's a lot of classified stuff in these boxes, but actually a lot of that is from the previous boxes, not from the current boxes. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is that Trump's saying, I was perfectly civil about this, and then they decided to raid my house. And now they pull out, there's a lawyer who signed a piece of paper when they left Mar-a-Lago. We don't, I don't even think we know, is it Christina Bob? I don't even know who the lawyer is. There's a lawyer who signed the piece of paper saying, yes, this is everything we had. So that lawyer who is not Trump, who is not Melania, who is not an owner of the property, whatever, signed some piece of paper along with probably 5,000 other pieces of paper saying, yeah, this was everything we had. Okay, and that is now being used again by the official story people to say, well, now it's open season because they said they'd given us everything, but we went back and we found four more boxes. So who that was fraud. Trump didn't sign that paper. And granted, his lawyer is his representative. But we don't know the conditions under which that paper was given. We don't know if it was just one of those things here, sign here, you know, there's a little the little sticker that said sign here with the little finger, you know, that you get from a legal document, signs that, dates it, sends it back. We don't the point is that every single factoid that is being thrown at us is something that will take six months in a courtroom. Every individual sliver of this will take six months in a courtroom to separate out. And by then it'll be 2028 and Trump will have been in his 18th term or not. So that's my, that's where Garland, that's where the question you have to ask yourself is, did they game this out? Did Garland and his people and stuff game this out appropriately? Because if it was like, okay, we've had enough. They said they gave us all the boxes. There are four more boxes there. These people, they suck. Let's go back and get those boxes. And what's more, we're going to shield ourselves from any possible malfeasance charge by saying in the warrant that we give to this rubber stamp guy, the magistrate in Florida, that we're allowed to take everything. But but that's the, the document so the says you can take anything classified or unclassified dating from the first day of his presidency to the last day of his presidency. And you will not be essentially, you are then held harmless for having taken that document out of Mar-a-Lago. But that, but that, so you, you asked, have they game this out, but that's sort of the weird cultural catch 22 moment we're in, right? It is not Garland's job to game out the politics of this. That's actually not his mandate as attorney general. His, his mandate is to, is to, you know, follow the law, prosecute those who are violating law. He does have discretion, obviously, but if he, if they were at a point of frustration with this, as Noah says, you know, unusually uh, challenging um, former president, then maybe he did do that. The problem is that he's now embedded in an institution that has itself become part of a broader political discussion in the culture. And so it's inevitable, whether he likes it or not, he probably should have thought through the political implications of that. And I think the fact that we saw repeatedly last week, the uh, denial on the part of the Biden administration that they've had no coordination with Justice Department, no even discussion of what's going on with the Justice Department. Um, that's been, I think, deliberate and purposeful, and we're going to continue to hear that. I don't know what to make of it, because actually, I would 
uh, I don't know if that should be reassuring or not, but I know the, the, the official story, as Abe would say, is that this is how the system is supposed to work. The problem is our system is deeply broken in several fundamental ways, and to act as if it's not and to go forward in this way might actually make things worse. I don't know the answer, but I'm just putting out there that this is one of the challenges. No, that's I mean, a good point because just because, you know, <clears throat> God forbid <clears throat> we find out down the line that that the White House did know what was going on with the Justice Department and that these claims of this this being, you know, having found out along with the rest of us, as it were, um, uh, if that that at some point proves to be untrue, then then, yeah, we're in big, big trouble. I mean, it's just easier to talk about the 30,000 foot political perspective than the actual facts of this case, because the actual facts of this case don't make sense. Again, we're back to reading the president's mind. And if we're reading the president's mind, we have to take the president's statements at face You're value. You're Trump. Yeah. You're talking Trump. President. Okay, just, yeah. But okay. president is an honorific that you carry with you for life. No, I know, um, but I, we have two people in this. Fair enough. So and we have to read the president's mind and the president's statements go to his state of mind. And the president has said in a statement that these documents were planted on him as evidence. Yeah, what does that, that say about his state of mind? What does that say about his actions and behaviors leading up to this? What does it say about what he knew about what was in those documents and his intentionality when he took them to the to this unsecure location? He's impossible. He's probably a crook. I mean, we got to discount what he says no. in public in order to find and divine a more justified rationale we've spent four years doing that didn't we i know right but it's a fool's tired <laughs> it's a fool's He's... game and it's irrelevant to the context of what we're talking about here but it isn't irrelevant unfortunately nothing is irrelevant well, actually That's no why you're there's... right it isn't irrelevant insofar as it suggests that he knew what he was doing no when i say it's not irrelevant what i mean is that we have we have all this conversation all the time about prosecutorial discretion we have an entire body of local district attorneyship, all these progressive prosecutors being put in place who are asserting the rights of prosecutorial discretion on whether or not they are going to actually try hundreds, if not thousands of cases across the country on things that they don't believe really properly should be considered crimes. The Attorney General of the United States has the ultimate prosecutorial discretion. It was his choice. He told us last week whether to sign or not sign that warrant. He did not have to sign that warrant. It was a choice. It was presented to him as a choice. He did not have to sign it and then submit it to the judge. He could have said, this is too risky or I own, I don't want to go about this this way, get me more or make a better case or something like that. Prosecutors say that all the time to the people under them. They say, this is dirty, don't bring it to a judge. This isn't clean enough, don't bring it to a judge. It's not ready to be brought to a judge. But what do we know about these warrants and their, and their execution? Because I mentioned this last week. At the federal level in the year 2018, I believe, or 2019, the last year for which there are proper stats because of the pandemic, 19,000 warrants were sought in the United States by, by, the, by federal actors, and 26 were denied. So what did Garland know? He knew that if he signed this thing, it was going to be accepted because judges <laughs> never turned down search warrants. 
26 out of 19,000. So it was all in his hands. And so you're saying it doesn't matter because Trump is a bum and Trump is a crook and Trump. And I, I have no problem with that. Trump's not the issue. The 74 million people who voted for Trump are the issue. The Republican Party is the issue. That is something that you have to take into account. Would you not take it into account? Would you know? Let me let me let me give you a bizarre hypothetical just for the hell of it. Okay, it's 1964 or 1966, and there's evidence that Martin Luther King committed a terrible, like you know, committed tax fraud. Okay, would Attorney General Ramsey Clark? have been would that would it have been wise for attorney general ramsey clark to have thrown the book at martin luther king i'm not likening trump to martin luther king i'm trying to think of an incredibly sensitive sort of thing where you might even have someone dead to rights you wouldn't do it then you wouldn't right justice department had all kinds of goods has had all kinds of goods on all kinds of people in my experience for all kinds of things and people I won't mention that they do not throw the book at because civil peace suggests it would be unwise. I wish it were otherwise. Maybe justice should be entirely blind. Justice is not blind. And going at somebody who got 74 million votes in 2020 is a risky proposition because it encourages the breakup of civil order if you do it badly. You know what else you shouldn't do badly? HR. You shouldn't do HR badly. I just want you to understand that because HR is very important for the good you know, administration and handling of your business. And let's face it, HR issues can kill you. You got wrongful termination suits. You got minimum wage requirements. You got labor regulations. And those HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E was created specifically for small business to give you a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, change your HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. You have a dedicated HR manager available by, by phone, real, real-time real chat or email. They customize your policies to fit your business, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees. Cancel anytime you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. So to do that, go to Bambi.com slash commentary. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And uh, there's been an overwhelming response to my announcement last week of David Bonson's free economics course. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Go to Bonson.com. And you are going to get 30 lectures. You are going to get a syllabus. You are going to get lectures, reading materials, and an entire history and uh, and a, a, a breathtaking scope of the philosophy, purpose, and ideals and practical issues revolving around economics. Macroeconomics, meaning how economics affects your country and your world, and microeconomics, meaning how economics affects your day-to-day life, your home, your family, your budget, your checkbook. That's what you get. Great reading materials, great lectures, and it's free. All you got to do is sign up at bonson.com, go there, 
And if you look right in the middle of the page, you'll see the word economics course. Click on that. You fill in your email, say why you want to do it, and you're in, and you're in like Flynn. This is one of the great offers you'll get. Totally free. David Bonson's economics course, B-A-H-N-S-A-N.com. So, of course, we're all horrified by what happened uh, uh, in upstate New York to Solomon Rushdie. Uh, Christine, I believe last year or the year before last, you were actually at the Chautauqua Institution where Solomon Rushdie was stabbed 10 times by uh, by a Shiite Islamic radical. Uh, yes. Can you tell us about it, what it's so like? And For those who don't know about Chautauqua, which has a really wonderful, rich history, uh, in its current incarnation, it's basically a summer retreat. People own homes on the property and they come spend the summer there, you know, lots of front porch hanging out. Uh, they have a series of events. They have, they have lots of religious services. It's it's um, a heavily Protestant uh, population of folks there, but they also have uh, services for, for other faiths. Um, I gave a, I gave a talk about free speech in that amphitheater. The, it's this beautiful open air amphitheater that seats lots of people. The audience is right there. You do you give a talk. You have a little. You have a really interesting give and take with the audience afterwards, which then often follows into conversation sitting on someone's porch. It's a lovely, wonderful, extremely earnest, uh, well intentioned place with no visible security that I could see. Although they do obviously have some security, and uh, you know, Rusty was there to to talk about you know. The, the themes that have have governed his entire life since he since the fatwa was placed on him and this guy rushed the stage and he he had a pass he was able to be there and and they don't do any weapon screening as far as i know at chautauqua it's a very open place you do have to get a ticket to come hear some of the talks at, at in the major amphitheater space but it's you know it's in meant to be a, have a kind of neighborhood feel for the people who spend their summers there and it's really horrible tragedy thank god he survived and and if you any of you saw the video uh audience members immediately rushed onto the stage to help him um and 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 to to make sure that the assailant was was held until the police could come get him um yeah it's just horrifying in fact our 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 roasty this year barry weiss has a, an excellent piece on on her common sense substack uh, talking about some of the reasons why now, like why why was he attacked now after all these decades of kind of living with this threat? Um, what what has changed? And it's it's well worth reading. But yeah, horrible tragedy. Really, we're hoping he he. We've heard good news that he's been able to be taken off the ventilator that he was on briefly, so he's got a long and very painful recovery ahead of him. Um, so I will say this: I am not um, I'm not a fan of Salman Rushdie's work. Uh, I don't didn't I don't like the Satanic Verses, um, which I think is a failed novel. I'm not a I I do not. Uh, he was maybe the most celebrated writer in the English language uh, in the late '70s and early '80s because of his novel Midnight's Children, which was an enormous, uh, critical, popular uh, success and very much a sort of a PC work of its time about, you know, sort of anti-imperialist, these children are born with supernatural abilities at the stroke of midnight when Indian independence is declared or uh, in 1948 and they live through the partition and all kinds of things. And this was a garlanded book in a way that very few books get garlanded this way any longer. He was immediately sort of uh, thrust into the position of being a major international literary political figure 
and um, uh, that position w- was such, I think, that he, like everybody else, was taken entirely by surprise, shock, and horror uh, when the publication of the Satanic Verses was met with this response from the Ayatollah Khomeini, who said that this is a, blas- a, a, a blasphemous work, and that because he was the creator of a blasphemous work, he was deserving of a death sentence and a bounty on his head to do to do this righteous killing. I think it sort of never occurred to Rushdie living in the literary bubble of, you know, wild praise and wild success and wild acclaim um, that uh, he was, that he was putting a target on his own back. You know, it was sort of one of those things where, well, he wrote something very controversial about religion, but, you know, yeah, so you write something controversial about religion, big deal. Well, the Ayatollah was not, you know, the the same Ayatollah who took, you know, uh, 52 Americans who 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 smiled at the taking of 52 Americans hostage, who participated in the Iran-Iraq war, who totalitarianized his own country upon his return from exile uh, in France and turned, uh, you know, turned Iran uh, into this, you know, totalitarian theocracy uh, was not, you know, was not someone to be trifled with on these matters and that uh, this was a very serious thing. And, you know, Rushdie was lived essentially in a kind of imprisoned state for many years. Among other places he lived, by the way, for two years, he lived in Christopher Hitchens's apartment in Washington in the Wyoming apartment building, um, uh, surrounded by 24-7 guards. You know, he couldn't go anywhere, do anything for like 10 years. And then things sort of began to loosen up. I was on a TV show with him three or four years ago and he basically no longer had any security because it 30 years had passed. And, um, but I don't know that we can see what happened here and separate out. This is why I want to sort of get into a geopolitical point here. This, this, this has happened. It's either extreme happenstance or it's not happenstance at all that, uh, he, this happened to him the same week that an Iranian national was, indicted for seeking the assassination of John Bolton. We now know that Mike Esper, the former Secretary of Defense, and Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, are both under 24-7 Secret Service protection because there are active assassination, there's active assassination chatter about them from the Iranians. And as all this is going on and the Iranians stage an assassination attempt, since we believe that the assassin, the attempted assassin, was in it tr- was in touch with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, according to Vice uh, magazine. Um, they staged an assassination attempt on U.S. soil, and we are in Vienna negotiating with the Iranians over the nuclear deal. Abe, what's your? Well, I don't know <clears throat> whether or not it's happenstance, or, or I, I don't know. Um, I think there's a com- there's a compelling case to think of it. Uh, perhaps not in terms of happenstance. But I do think that there's some kind of parallel with um, Rushdie having sort of given up uh, on his security uh, as the U.S. has kind of decided to make nice with Iran. Um, In other words, uh, there's a kind of self-delusion at work, I think, in both cases. 
uh, sadly. I'm not, this is not me, you know, uh, wishing to, to punish uh, Salman Rushdie here or anything, but I, I think, I think you know, the, the point is that when uh, you have a fatwa issued in 1989 um, and the person who would uh, most successfully attempt to fulfill that fatwa is not even born yet, uh, and then is born in the United States in the next century, and um, and uh, comes very close to to actually delivering the death sentence, um, and you still have the same regime. Yeah, Khomeini died, but it's but it's it's the same seventy nine regime in place in Tehran, who is <clears throat> saying now. Um, well, we don't know anything about this, but but he brought it on himself, uh, who is still saying death to America, who is still talking about wiping Israel off the map. Um, and and we and the United States is now uh, desperately, from all reports, trying to give them everything and anything in order to get this preposterous uh, nu- nuclear deal. I think it speaks to this long, broad, deep and very perilous misunderstanding of Iran and not taking the threat seriously. I think Graham Wood has a, a really wonderful piece at The Atlantic this morning. I commend to everybody um, about the disgraceful response of some of the uh, sort of, of world leaders and intellectuals to the fatwa originally, which is like, what was he doing? You know, you can't talk about Islam this way. You can't offend people in this manner. And I, I mean, I have a certain degree of sympathy with the notion that people are way too flip about blaspheming other people's religions. I mean, you know, the book of Mormon musical is probably the single most remarkable example of this. Like, you know, if Trey Parker and Matt Stone who wrote the book of Mormon had any reason to think that Mormons were like the Ayatollah Khomeini, that musical would not exist because if anything would, I mean, if you haven't seen it, the 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 absolutely horrific kind of slander of Mormonism represented by that by that show, um, you know, is really it's it's sort of a mark of the civility and 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 Americanness of the of the of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints that they never had a second's real fear that they were under any kind of risk. But that there was a world in which people said, oh, well, you know, Rushdie kind of brought this on himself, the way people thought Charlie Hebdo had brought this on themselves. And we are living in a world in which there is a really interesting intellectual predisposition toward the the act of blaming the victim and writing down the evil against the person who has been targeted, like Rushdie. Again, I'm not a fan of Rushdie's fiction, but... um, you know, the world in which Jimmy Carter and others said, well, I mean, he really shouldn't have done that. And maybe he shouldn't have done it. It doesn't matter whether he should have done it or not. The minute that, you know, an evil regime run by an evil man using God as his shield for assassination says, assassinate this guy. I'm putting a bounty on his head. I'm letting anyone in the world know they if they get a shot, they should take it. And I will gar- I will rain money down on their heads that you support that person without reservation. And that, you know, then this happened again with Charlie Hebdo. You remember there was this whole scandal where Penn, the, the you know, free speech group, issues an original statement that sort of blames Charlie Hebdo for publishing, you know, 
mean cartoons about Muhammad. Again, probably the people at Charlie Hebdo are sorry that they did it. Probably Rushdie is sorry that he wrote the satanic verses. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what whatever the cause is or whatever the reason is. This cannot be allowed to stand. And the United States government continuing to negotiate with the regime whose fatwa led to a direct assassination attempt on a writer on American soil in upstate New York, that that wasn't suspended on Saturday morning by, you know, because you say we're not returning to the table until you lift this death sentence on this guy's head. He's sitting on a ventilator in a hospital in Erie County, New York. You take that fatwa off or we're not negotiating with you, barbarian scum. Didn't happen. And here we are. And, you know, we'll see what we'll see what we'll see what happens. But we are we are in a very weird circumstance in which you know that there are tens of thousands of professors on college campuses in the United States thinking that Rushdie got what he deserved. Thinking, 30 years ago, that saying. would. Huh? If they're thinking it, they're not saying it. Right. They're which not is, saying to it. me the subject of my blog post today actually um one of the one of the indications that they never believed a word of it this pseudo-scientific justification for speech as violence which we were privy to throughout the trump years 2017 and on um about how your your body produces proteins called proto-inflammatory cytokines or what have you that are activated when you experience trauma, including non-physical trauma. And that sort of thing was very prevalent uh, for years. And the fact that it is not being trotted out to justify this grotesque act of violence demonstrates that it was all a lot of garbage to begin with, which we all knew at the time. But the people who subscribe to this philosophy didn't act that way. And if they really did believe what they were saying, they should go out there and justify this. Uh, it's just more, I mean, it's hard not to look at, you know, the news over the last week and this, you know, stuff where people are talking about bombing the FBI and whatever and stuff with Rushdie and 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 saying that, you know, we're we're, you know, we moved into some very dark place at some point in the 2010s and we're, we're still there. You know, and we are we're still there. And our only real fear here is that we're 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 escal you know, that we're moving into a more escalatory phase and we have very few resources to deal with the escalation for all the reasons that we've enumerated on the podcast so far today. So I don't know why I'm chuckling because it's not anything worth a chuckle except kind of despairing chuckle and so i'll leave you with that despairing chuckle we'll be back tomorrow for abe christina no i'm john podhoritz keep the candle burning <laughs>